Sponsored by the UCD Innovation Academy. You're listening to An Entrepreneur Like You with Dr. Lolly Mansi. Hi, I'm Dr. Lolly, and you're listening to An Entrepreneur Like You. I'm an entrepreneur and a lecturer in UCD's Innovation Academy, and I teach entrepreneurship, innovation, and creativity. And I believe that entrepreneurs are both born and made. In this series, we won't be talking to the Elon Musks and the Richard Bransons of this world. We'll be talking to people just like you. Welcome to the November edition of An Entrepreneur Like You with me, Dr. Lolly. Today, my guest is Darren Knight. Welcome, Darren. Hey, how are you doing? <laughs> Very good. It's good to be here. Thanks thank for you. coming up from Blessington. No, uh, Nace. Oh, Nace. Yep. Sorry, nice, my apologies. Nice. Nice. But, uh, no, thank you very much for asking me along. It's You're very, really good to be here. Very welcome. So we first crossed paths, literally, um, <laughs> on a mental health walk uh, or hike run by um, Brian Downs. Um, how did you come to be on that hike? Uh, my wife knows Brian, so yeah. she's worked with Brian, and uh, and he invited her. Yeah, and then she said, "You're going on a walk." <laughs> and a little while later, later, I'm on a walk, and uh, we ended up chatting, and the rest is history. Yeah, yeah. it's lovely. I mean, it is, it, we went to um, uh, was it Jewel? Juice. Juice. Sorry, we went to yeah. Mount Juice. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah. And uh, and in the, the whole point of it is sort of networking, but also talking yeah. and connecting and also being out in nature. Yeah. Um, and I think post-COVID, a lot of us need to do more of these kind of things where we are both connecting and getting our nature fix. I certainly, during COVID time, I was living out in Meath, but I would have the same bit of forest that I would go to all of the time. And now that's becoming um, a thing. It's called forest bathing. But for me, it's really just the more around I am around nature, the more I reset from yeah. some of the sort of stresses and strains of entrepreneurialism. Would you be a very outdoorsy person? Yeah, incredibly. Yes. Yeah. Give us some examples of some of the things that you do. Uh, I would spend as much time as I can outdoors in nature. Yeah. Um, you know, through my career since day one, well, since childhood, you know, yeah. I'd, I'd be out getting muddy and, and running around and playing on my bike. And, you know, I grew up in a city, but you, you'd be out finding bushes and ditches and, and whatever. And then through my career, I, I spent most of my career outdoors in nature. And now the stage of life I'm in now, it's it's not about immersing in nature. It's, it's not about going to nature to find something from nature. I now realise that we are nature. Yeah. We are nature and nature is us. I am nature. And so when we're out in nature, there's no duality. It's not me and it. We're together right. in its most natural form. Right. Well, I mean, if we take that sort of back to its sort of atomic level, mm. we're all made of stardust, <laughs> right? So, yeah. you know, in terms of energy and matter, let's, let's go back uh, initially to, to childhood because mm. um, the, obviously that's, that, that's pivotal in sort of creating us as as we are. Was it the kind of child you say when you you know were you thrown out of the door and you say come home for your tea? Was it was it like that? Just yeah, yeah, it kind of was. We, we grew up in a city. Um, Which city was that? Bristol, right. in, in the UK. Um, so I gr- grew up in the in the city, not not even in suburbs or anything. Right. Um, parents were working. Yeah. So, you know, we'd be what they call the, um, what do they call it, door latch, or latch, latch key, key kids. kids yeah. yeah. So we'd come home from school, make our own tea. And yeah. then hours later, you know, mum or dad, whatever, would come home. And we would just, you know, Sunday was, <laughs> Sunday was right, get out of the house. And yeah. we'd come back in time for dinner. And, yeah. and that was it. Just get out. 
It's a it's a very for me it was the 1970s. I'm not sure when it was for you, but yeah, it's a very 1970s, 1970s childhood. Yeah. Yeah, 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 absolutely, absolutely. You know, and no helicopter w- parenting. Everything was just you were thrown out and you got up to your own your own mischief. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And I'm not saying that you know things were safer back then, but there was certainly no real threats that we were yeah. would perceive of, and so the city was our playground, and we would go and find the local. F- bit of forestry block you know yeah. somewhere or the the fields or the farmers or, or a bit of rough ground and we had to just go and throw ourselves into it what was bristol like back then <laughs> it wasn't as good as it was now right. or it is now sorry um yeah it's 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 had a a checkered past yeah but again you know i use this expression a lot um it's like asking a fish what water is. You know, I grew up in that. Yeah. You know, I, I didn't see any of the, I couldn't see any of the poverty. I couldn't see any of the racism. I couldn't see any of the, the kind of drug problems. Right. You just, you it were just, just there. Was, it was just life and home. Yeah. 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 And I, I didn't get myself into trouble. So I, I didn't have to get bogged down with the nitty gritty. I just threw myself into living and yeah. that was it. Brilliant. And what did mum and dad do? Uh, my mum uh, was a secretary and uh, my dad's a chef and then my stepdad because my mum and dad were separated my stepdad was a, um, he was a what would you call it a, a draftsman for Rolls Royce making oh, wow. uh, engines for planes mm. and, and things like this very cool so they, they <clears> and brothers and sisters yep uh, two brothers uh, f- from my mum and my dad and then stepbrother on my dad's side and stepbrother and stepsister on my mum's side. So a blended family. So yeah, yeah, very, yeah. it's very Simpsons-esque. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> very yeah. modern. But yeah. uh, again, I can't complain of anything. Well, from this childhood in Bristol, you went on to end up uh, joining the Royal Marines Commando. Tell mm. us how that happened. Everyone says, you know, were you, were you conditioned for this? You know, <laughs> we're all your family military and you were just the next in line. No, I, nobody in my family was military. Right. Nobody. I, I think maybe a, a great grandfather or something like this and nothing I know of. Uh, and I didn't know anybody in the military. Right. And I remember I must have been, I don't know how old I was. I must have been in preschool because I remember walking down the street with my dad in an area called Hartcliffe in Bristol. And we're on our way to school. And I remember this distinctly because it was at the same time I was measuring myself up against his belt. So I was small. Yeah. Um, And he must have said something like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, a soldier. (laughs) Like so many kids do. Yeah. (laughs) Why? (laughs) How? I don't know. And I genuinely didn't know. I just knew I wanted to be a soldier. And this just stuck with me. It's it's all I ever wanted to do. But then as you become older, as a child, and you start thinking, oh, Jesus, it's getting towards the end of school, mm-hmm. as in, you know, the end of my school career, and I'm going to have to start picking a career or something. What what kind, What are soldiers? What, what do soldiers do? I don't even know. I'd, I'd read Commando magazine, comics, sure. and all the rest. Of it. And uh, I just went, who's the best? Literally, who is the best at what they do? Uh, it's got to be the Marines. And so, yeah, yeah, if you ask the Marines, it's definitely the Marines. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I kind of, and I did do a little bit of analysis and, and I just went, Royal Marines Commandos, they are above and beyond anything else. How does one get into the recruitment of that? 
you just walk up at the door and say, I want to be a Royal Marines Commando. And at the time, uh, you had to pass academic tests, you had to pass physical tests yeah. um, at the kind of civilian street level, you know, as a skinny little um, 17 year old wanting yeah. to join up. And then when you go along, what they used to have was a, a pre course assessment yeah. where you go to the training camp, the Commando Training Centre in Devon. And you do, I think it was three days, um, and you basically just get thrashed. And they just want to know, are you the kind of person that they're looking for? Well, I'm watching a special SAS Forces on Channel 4 at the moment. And it's a lot of shouting in your face kind of stuff. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Now, I'm not going to name drop anything, but... uh, (sighs) Uh, maybe not the the current uh, series is running, but the series prior to that, a lot of those guys are actually Marines. Yeah, uh, they're not SAS. Okay, the Marines went on to, and so um, all these sex symbols are all on my Facebook, <laughs> and we're all like, <laughs> you weren't like that when you were in the Marines, and now yeah. suddenly, yeah. So it's it's a case of you're just getting thrashed because they just want to know have you got that resilience, um, and also it gives you a little bit of insight. Uh, yeah, it's, do I want to be shouted at? And then once you once you pass that, you then go down and you start your eight months of training. And it, at the time, it was the I think it still is. It's the longest um, basic training in the world. Can you talk us through a little bit about those eight months? What kind of things did you have to do? Uh, first thing and most importantly, you don't have to be a Superman. Okay, you have to be a normal person, just a normal normal person who will not give up. Right. You have to be a normal person with all the faults that comes with being normal, but just have that resilience. You do not have to be a Superman. Mm. Um, and everything is incremental. You will never be asked to do anything that you are not capable of doing. So you start off with the most ridiculous, small things. The, the first week of training, you are learning how to shave. You are learning how to shower in the shower. There's an instructor stood naked in the shower in front of you. What? showing you, I swear, <laughs> showing you how to shower and how to shave. You are learning how to iron your clothes. So hang on, let's, let's go back to the sharing for a second. Okay. <laughs> so so the, that's thrown me for a curveball because I, I have never heard that before. So so there's a special way that you should clean yourself. Is no. it like is it is in terms of you you soap this way or no 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 it's 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 just common sense the basics okay but everybody is being taught from the basic foundation level okay okay right so it's it's the assumption is that you may not know any of this stuff. Or if you do, is it that there's a Marine's way of doing things and then there's another other people's way, a sort of civilian way? Or It's a really interesting question because I ended my military career as an instructor and I've never actually thought about it that way. It, it's not assuming that you don't know because whether you know or not is not my problem when you turn up as a recruit. It's I'm just going to show you the map Right. And now everybody's seen the map. Everybody knows what that map, everyone knows what the landscape is. Right. Whether you knew it before or not is kind of irrelevant. The fact is, everybody now knows. Right. No, yeah. Okay. Shaving, showering, it's all kind of, Jesus, you'd like to think at 17 years old, everybody knows how to shower, but... You know, these are the, and again, it's all incremental now that I'm thinking about it. It's all incremental. It's all now right. progressive because that showering in a, in a block in, in the, in the training camp, seems ridiculous and silly, 
But once you start progressing that further into your career and you're away on operations and you're away um, hiding in a bush for weeks on end um, in a life and death situation, the thing that can get you killed is your hygiene. Right. And so everything is incremental. That makes sense. I need to be able to teach people how to look after themselves progressively all the way through. And stay alive. And stay alive. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So... Okay, the, sh- the sharing, let's move past that. <laughs> what, are, what kind of other things? So obviously there's um, uh, things we've seen, like kind of, you know, carrying heavy bags up mountains. And w- mm. what kind of other stuff did you do? So Marines training is broken into two halves. The first half is infantry training. So Marines aren't referred to as soldiers. Right. We're, uh, and we're certainly not the army. We're, we're kind of separate. So we're referred to as commandos. So the first half is infantry training, training you how to be the equivalent to a soldier. Right. The second half of training is the commando training. So from day one all the way through, fitness is your, your foundation. Right. Your body and your mind is what's going to get you through everything. Yeah, yeah. So the fitness is all progressive and it's all the way through. And then you start layering in those skills that enable you to eventually become a commando. Right. And so it's everything from, you know, the map reading, the navigation, the tactics, the, I was a weapons and tactics in, instructor. So I would train people how to be the commando element. You then got, you know, the the drill instructors training discipline um, right. at a finite level. You've got the um, PTIs, the, the the physical training instructors, bringing that base level of fitness up. Um, you've got the signals, the the um, the radios, the, yeah. everything that involves. The point of the Marines is we should be able to put us in a small team, throw us out into the middle of anywhere, and be able to operate right. independently. We, we we do have backup, we do have uh, attached ranks, but we should be able to equip ourselves to throw ourselves into the middle of any environment in the world and operate effectively doing what we're trained to do. And um, what is it that you're trained to do? Is it survival? Is it rescue? Is it... What's the point of it? We're fighting. Fighting, people. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's... That's what we are. And so, you know, it's the old adage, it's amazingly an American thing, but send in the Marines. Yeah. You know, if things are bad, send them in. Yeah. They won't fail. They'll, they'll get whatever needs to be done. Whoever you are up against, there is there is no sense of mentality, mentality that anybody is better than you. And that is not an ego thing. That right. is not a... Um, I'm bigger and stronger than any of you. It's anybody who comes against us, I feel sorry for you because you are not what we are. You you can't beat us. Right. Maybe they can. Maybe yeah. they will. Yeah. Maybe, you know, I've lost lots of friends. <laughs> they got beaten. Um, but that's the mentality that we are so highly trained, so disciplined, so conditioned that we are sent in to do the job. Now, it could be peacekeeping forces. Right. It could be fighting forces. Um, it could be intelligence gathering. Um, but whatever we're thrown in to do, there, there, is, there is no mentality of losing anything. There can't be. So this uh, this resilience is fascinating to me because you know entrepreneurs are resilient people. Mm. They're, they're this bounce back, you know, and and 
this is the first time I've really sort of started thinking about sort of the idea of the cultivation of resilience. We try and do it through some of the stuff that we're training in the Innovation Academy, but really resilience is learned over time. <laughs> so so you're saying it's partly, if I'm right, you're, it's partly learned through the training that you're doing. And it's also the, the, the team dynamic. The resilience comes from the team really strongly, right? Has, has to be. And, and that's one of the things about, and I can't speak for the army or, or any other type of military force. I can only speak about the Marines. Um, but that's one of the things that all of us say is we are family. Yeah. We are family and we can be separated for 10, 15, 20 years, put us back together. And it was like it was somebody just walked out of the room, turned around and walked back in again. Right. There is, I, I can't even think of a closer bond than that. And, and funny, so that training, that eight months of training, the longest training in the Western world, you get to the end of your training and then you join your unit, your fighting unit, as a, a Green Beret, Royal Marines commando, and that's when your training starts. Right. All you've been told is the theory and a little bit of applied theory, but then you join on day one and that's when it starts. That's why anybody who joins a unit from day one, you're just, you, you may think I've just been through the hardest training in the world. <laughs> no, <laughs> you're, you're at the first. The adventure begins. The adventure begins now. Yeah. And, and we, you can only get through that together in a team. You can only get through that. There is no, there is no individual. Now, every individual needs to be at the highest caliber that is humanly possible for that individual. Yeah. But there's no individual in any of this right everything even down to okay so if you thought the shower kind of threw you a little bit even down to going for a poo in the jungle <laughs> you're not allowed to do it on your own you have to so buddy buddy really? system oppo system yeah okay so everything down to God, even going to the toilet was really like each other you have to you have to be with another person so there is no individual in everything the very smallest um element is two people and then it kind of grows on that so teamwork is everything it's everything it's everything yeah i've never i've never thought about a poo buddy before you're you're really educating it, absolutely. me absolutely <laughs> you, you step out from where you're sleeping in the jungle at, at nighttime and you take more than five steps right. in any direction there's a good chance you're going to be lost yes if you're lost in the jungle at night on your own there's a good chance you're going to be dead fairly soon after. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Wow, I really, I really am getting an education. Um, <laughs> right, so uh, we're going to take a small break. And after that break, I want to come back because uh, you were in the Royal Command and Marines Commando for 13 years. Mm -hmm. You ended that career as a weapons and tactics instructor. Mm -hmm. And I think we'll delve into that a little bit more before finding out what you went on to do afterwards. So join us after the break. Broadcasting to South Dublin on 93.9. This is Dublin South FM. Sponsored by the UCD Innovation Academy. You're listening to an entrepreneur like you with Dr. Lolly Mansi. Okay, great. Welcome back, everybody. So we have Darren Knight and we're talking about his career in the Royal Marines Commando. And then he went on to many more endeavours. So we just delve into those adventures a little bit before we move past them. 13 years. Tell us some of the things that you got up to. So again, the, the purpose of the Marines is to be able to operate in any environment in the world. So what we do is we bounce from every single environment in the world and train in war fighting yeah. in all of those environments. So it's uh, jungle, desert, mountain, uh, Arctic, jungle, 
mountain Arctic uh, and what we call black shod. Uh, so just normal kind of what we would imagine European. Yeah. Um, and then we just keep rotating, just practicing all the way through. And then if anything comes up um, that is required, then then we'll go off. So you're rotating in your training whilst you're not in, in service where you're not called on? Yes, okay. constantly. Okay. All the time. So it's an incredible way to travel. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How many countries have you been to? I honestly wouldn't know. More than 30? I imagine so. Yeah. <laughs> if, it's got, if it's got desert or a jungle or a bit of Arctic or which a mountain is, which, in which it. Which is pretty much everywhere. I've, I've been okay. to fairly. Fair okay. Bit. Tell us some yeah. of your, your more memorable adventures. In the Marines? No, I can't. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> Absolutely not. Okay. Uh, okay. Tell us about the Arctic Circle, just a little bit. The Arctic Circle. Um, and again, this was in context to the history of the time. Yeah. So the Marines were specialists in Arctic warfare fighting. Uh, and at the time, the, the, th- the perceived threat was from Russia attacking yeah. through the northern flank. Yeah. And so we'd be the guys to go up there and stop them from coming through kind of northern Europe th- through that way. Yeah. Um, and so you, you, you'd be out, so you'd be out there and, and it's, it's interesting because, you know, as we what I've learned is, is that nature is ch- constantly trying to kill you. Yes. Nature. Yes. You know, we're, we're there as these big, strong guys and go off and fighting guns and bombs and things like this. And when you go into these environments, you're like, actually nature is trying to kill me. <laughs> so I've got to, f- I've got to adapt to that first before I can even, right? you know, and t- say... So, well, nature is seeing you as hostile by being in its, in, in its environment because yeah, you're not naturally you're there. You're an invader. Yeah. You're yeah. to it. Uh, give us an example of how nature has tried to scupper your plans. Um, Are we talking frostbite or more polar bears? No, I've had, I've had frostbite. Um, uh, yeah, you know, the Arctic Circle being stuck in a, uh, a whiteout, um, which is incredibly scary because, you know, it's very cold. Um, and you're stuck in a whiteout, in a, in a whiteout condition. You, you, don't, you don't know where the sky or the ground is. You don't right. know where the horizon is. You don't know your directions. Um, you pretty much have to hunker down and, and try to ride it out yeah. um, in the jungle. Uh, you, you you can't operate at night in the jungle. It's too it's far too dangerous. Right. Um, although saying that, in everything else, the Marines operate at night ninety nine point nine percent of the time wow, under the cover okay. of darkness. Okay. So pretty much everywhere else in the world, we sleep or move during the daytime, and then we operate at night. Okay. Um, so mountains, you know, mountains are trying to kill you. The desert. It's trying to kill you, the Arctic, and so it's trying to kill everything. And then you've got to be able to do your job to achieve your mission. Um, So it's this constant adapting to nature, adapting with nature, right? uh, Finding that that interface between you and nature, so that you can and the skills that it takes to do that. Yeah. So you need to have the skills, and then being able to push forward and actually do your job on top of that. So we've got resilience, adaptability, mm. agility, mm. teamwork. I mean, all very common for, for the entrepreneurial endeavor. Um, what about things like failure? Because I'm always banging on about the fact that there can't be failure in entrepreneurial circles because everything is a, a learning experience. How is, how is failure dealt with in the Marines? So this is something I was quite passionate about in as an instructor. Mm. So I was 
an instructor taking recruits through their training and and failure is natural. Yeah. Failure is natural. On usually about the third week, I'd get all my guys together, sit them in a room and I'd turn around and say, listen, look around yourselves now. There's been maybe 15 of us sat there. And I said, out of these 15 here, only three of you are going to make it through. Yeah. That's the rough, you know, statistics for that. Uh, who's it going to be? Is it going to be you or somebody else? Right. Because failure is natural. Either your fault or not your fault, but failure is natural. And so when it does come to failure in in the training, um, you're given a chance. Yeah. You're always given a chance. If you fail something, fine, you failed. Take it on the chin. But now you have to try and learn how to be better mm. to not fail. Now, you may not have an awful lot of time to improve yourself, but you will be given the support to improve in whatever you failed with. You will be given unconditional support mm. in, in making yourself to the required standard. But then if you fail again, I think maybe you got three chances in right. most of the tests. Um, but if you got to the cutoff point and you're failing, you're history. You're That's gone. It. There is There is no question. There is no, this isn't fair or another chance. No. That's it. Yeah. You're done. And it, it can't be for everybody. I think that's no. that's it. Right? A lot of people sort of try it on for size and then they just don't have what it takes. Yeah. And <laughs> as with most things in life, we're sold a lie. Yeah. You go down to a Royal Marine Commando uh, recruitment fair or whatever and you pick up a glossy magazine mm. and you'll say, oh, wow, that is sexy. That is great. Yeah. It is not. It is horrible. Yes. It is <laughs> Horrible, horrible, horrible. Yeah. Now, some of us are actually cut out for horrible. Yes. Yeah. A lot of people aren't. And usually by about week eight or nine in the training, yeah. then people are starting going, actually, this isn't quite as glossy and sexy as I, re I thought it was. <laughs> right. And then they say, it's not for me. And just yeah. Go, <laughs> Fine. Good luck. <laughs> and I, I mean that. Take my heart with you because yeah. this is horrible. What There's was fun it, on the way. But. What was it that made you want to leave? Um, I don't know. It's hard because, you know, we always change and we always evolve as people. And so the me sitting here now, looking back at the me then, yeah. I almost don't recognize him. And I know for a fact when I did put in my notice to leave, everybody I knew was beyond shocked because I was the career man. Right. I was, I lived for this. I was good at what I did and I lived for it. So for me to turn around and say I'm out, uh, shocked everybody, I think there was something in my soul yeah. that was saying something's not sitting right with me. Right. And, you know, and did a lot of soul searching and uh, and just decided. The other thing is, you, you know, a full career is 22 years. At right. the 12th year point, you can get your half pension. And then you can decide to jump ship and right. start a new career, or you can then follow through for the full pension and the full career. So at that 12-year point, a lot of people do do a lot of soul searching and something wasn't sitting quite comfortably with me. And I I thought, I need to go and explore, see what's happening out there. You, you phrased it to me as, I wanted to be a normal person. <laughs> what do you mean by normal? The Marines aren't normal. Yeah. That lifestyle is not normal. That environment is not normal you're asking human beings to go above and beyond what is normally accepted right what right. is normally understood yeah um it's not normal 
and 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 it shouldn't be normal. It because you know I always explain that he, the the parameter of human conditioning and uh, experience is from left to right, from negative emotion to uh, good emotion, yeah. and we have experienced way beyond negative emotions yeah. and way beyond positive right our frame of reference for life and living is not like somebody who's never experienced that before right 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 and so when i left i just went <laughs> i have led the craziest life i want to be normal i just want to be normal and so uh, i went out looking <laughs> to see what that was because it was an absolute novelty to me well you dipped your toe in in normal waters by becoming a teacher hmm. T- talk to us about that uh, come on I ended up at a, I'll give you the very short version of that. I ended up um, at an open day for a university because yeah. I'd never stepped foot in a university before. Right. No one in my family had ever been to university before. I heard about a, an open day. It, it was around the corner for me. I went in just for free teas and coffees and just see what a university looks like. Next thing I know, I'm talking to the head of the department for teaching and she persuaded me to become a teacher. <laughs> <laughs> By the end of the well, that's, that's very normal. <laughs> Two weeks later, I was on a course. Wow. And how long did that last for you, that uh, experience? That was about five years. Yeah, yeah. So I started off teaching adults um, uh, for literacy and numeracy, uh, adults who had maybe struggled with learning uh, and then worked into um, refugees and asylum seekers, yeah. uh, English. Um, speaking English, not English, refugees and asylum seekers. Um, and then ended up specialising in children with social, emotional, uh, behavioural difficulties. Well, I can see how that's led into what you're currently doing, and we'll reveal that to mm. the listeners in a little while. But after those four or five years, you went sort of into a different route, which is probably more to do with the Marines, uh, which is you ended up becoming a bodyguard for royalty and heads of state. Yep. <laughs> so you're looping Bit back around again to your earlier training. What was the transition then between the teaching work and the normal world and then suddenly becoming? The nature of the beast. Right. Okay. The nature of the beast. So I had spent so long doing what I did yeah. in, in the military. It would be very common for those that have left the military to go into that. That kind was of the work. normal thing yeah, to jump absolutely. straight into that. That yeah. was the normal thing, but I didn't want that. I wanted to be normal. And then I had little voices in in my ear, friends. At the time, Afghanistan was kicking off, right. and there was a lot of money to be made, and uh, friends saying, "Yeah, you've got to come and do this. This is made for us. It's easy money. Um, it's what we do. It's what we enjoy. You've got to come and do this." And no matter how much I love teaching, and I love teaching with a passion, yeah. the nature of the beasts was sniffing and going, mm, that sounds quite good. Well, I would also say there was an enormous gap between a teacher's salary and then becoming a bodyguard to high net worth individuals. Oh, well, it didn't even start out like that. Uh, I, I, I was going to go over to Afghanistan. That's where yeah. all my friends were. Okay. Uh, they were all bodyguarding over in Afghanistan. So back into the community, the teamwork. Yeah. Yeah. Back into the Marines very without hard being to in leave the Marines. That. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and that was my intention. I had my visa sorted out uh, to, to go over and start doing that. I just needed to do my bodyguarding course. Uh, did that. I came top of my bodyguarding course and the chief instructor that, where does a bodyguarding course occur <laughs> there were a few at the time um there weren't as many as there maybe are now uh, but there were a few at the time because okay. afghanistan had happened in iraq okay. had happened yeah. and there was a lot of requirements so i did that and my chief instructor who was the chief instructor for the sas um at the end of my course he called me into his office and said listen you've come top of the course what's your 
what's your intentions? And he already knew, he knew. Um, and I said, well, I'm going over to Afghanistan. And he said, can I give you some advice? He said, you're making a huge mistake. Yeah. You're making a huge mistake. He said, I've got another area of work I think would be more your way uh, and I'd like you to consider it. Was this a royal commission? It was... I know you can't say who. <laughs> yeah. No, it wasn't It wasn't even a specific job. It was a, a line of work. Uh, he said, you're not like... <laughs> you're not like the other boys. Um, <laughs> you're, you're not... He said, you, you have a personality and you have a way of dealing with people yeah. that maybe we wouldn't normally see in other people. And so I want you to consider this type of work. Okay. And what I ended up doing was working in high risk, uh, with high risk clients. So with a high risk of assassination or kidnap or something like this. Okay. Because the higher the risk, the lower the profile, you have to be with that person one-to-one and you have to design their life and movements with as low a profile as possible. And so you need to be able to communicate right. to people. How how do you have a personal life in all of this? <laughs> it, my personal life was a um, a coincidence, an attachment. Yeah, um, I, I lived for my job. Yeah, yeah. Lived well, for my I job. Think and if, everybody else. If you're a you're bodyguard to somebody, you're with them all of the time. All the time. So so, how do you go home and be with other people? Oh. Yeah. Yeah, it's very and, complicated. And, you know, aside from the military having its psychological effects on you and then in the high risk bodyguarding kind of thing, that has a psych, because you're constantly watching your back and their back. Um, and so when you're on, in your free time, you're usually highly wired. Yeah. And you're on the lookout. So is it, is it I mean, I'm imagining it's something like hypervigilance that mm. you have to develop, right? So that sense of hypervigilance is very mentally draining. Again, to be switched on so much. Again, it's like asking a fish what water is. Yeah, it's, you've always been like that. You, you just, yeah. that's how you are. When you walk into a restaurant, you've scanned every single table, every single door, every single window. You've made sure that your back is to a wall. I was going to say, is it, is it like the, in, the, in, the, in the gangster movies, you know, the sort of the mafia movies where you, you go into an Italian restaurant, even now, do you still sit with your back to the wall? 100%. 100%. I've got, for, anybody, for any listeners, I've got a door to my left here and I'm slightly inclined away from it. Now, I've had years to readapt myself now but the fact that this door is slightly behind me there's just something in my psyche saying wow I think you're safe in Dublin South FM I, I think we are yeah yeah but you can't you can't undo a lot of this tell us about okay so tell us a little bit about I know you can't say specifics but about being a bodyguard like kind of you know I know go on just just it, spill the beans a tiny yep. bit it's it's not sexy. It's not exciting. It's, it's <laughs> again it, it, that again. It, it feels like it is when you see it on movies. So I call the body uh, the bodyguarding principles the three B's: right, boredom, backache, bladder control. Oh yeah, that's not very sexy. No, <laughs> the person you're looking after doesn't want you there for a right. start. Nine times out of ten. So I specialised in high threats, um, so royalty, heads of state, high net worth individuals, as yeah. opposed to, say, celebrities. And so those people are very, very important people. And yeah. they've got something very important to do in this world. And you are getting in that way. Right. You may be there to help potentially save their lives, but that's likely never going to happen. And they just don't want you there. So they resent you. Right. 99.9% of the time. So you're just hanging around with somebody who doesn't particularly like you. <laughs> right. <laughs> to the point where, you know, I was looking after a prince for seven months and um, and neither of us liked each other, to be fair. Um, 
but you're with each other all the time. And we'd be traveling the world, going to like five, six star hotels. And nobody knows who you are or who he is apart from the general manager. And so you'd walk up to the table and they'd be like, hello, gentlemen, the table for two. And I'm just sitting there going, we're not together. <laughs> but everybody makes the assumption. And right, okay. If he needs to go to the toilet, I'm sorry for debasing your, your podcast so much. But Again, he here needs, we go. <laughs> if he needs to go to the toilet, guess who's going with him? Okay. He can't just get up and walk I off know, to the I never even room, thought so. about that either. Yeah, okay. And so you walk in, he's in the cubicle doing what he does. Is I'm he s- ever alone? No. Well, yeah, Do you sleep in the same room? No, no. So we have attached rooms. Okay. With, uh, with the door in between us. Is the door open? Like when you have It'd a teenager? Be oh, no. <laughs> I wouldn't dream of going in there. I'd, I'd be sacked within a split second if I ever opened that door. So he never I'm... actually gets privacy? No. God, that's a nightmare. Yeah. Okay. Okay. But these people are conditioned to that kind of life. They're, yeah, that's, okay. they're born into this, a lot of them. Wow. Um, the only people who maybe weren't were, say, bankers during the banking crisis. Right. When there was a real threat again against some of the heads of some of these banks. Uh, and they were like, mm, this isn't normal. But a lot of these guys, this is just normal stuff for them. It's unbelievable because I can see here from your sheet that you went on then to undercover and covert surveillance and mm. then anti-piracy, which also sounds kind of sexy, but uh, <laughs> nope. it definitely wasn't with the Somalis and then moved into counterterrorism. Yeah. So you stayed in that whole area for how long? Oh, do you know, I can't even remember. It's quite a few years, quite a few years, because I started off as an operative. I was the guy doing the work. Uh, and then I kind of transitioned through. I'm very, very lucky how the universe had my back. I kind of transitioned through to being a consultant Yeah, uh, and ended up with my own company. Um, so you're a counter-terrorism consultant? Maritime counter-terrorism. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, because the Somali terrorism, um, uh, Somali piracy, sorry, was yeah. the big thing. And I wish we'd have a different word from pirate because, of course, we all think of Jack Sparrow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I've met real pirates. They do not look like Jack Sparrow. Yeah. <laughs> Torn up pair of shorts and an old Metallica T-shirt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they are not like Jack Sparrow. <laughs> I can tell you a pirate story. Yeah, go on. Okay, so we're on an unarmed job. Yeah. Uh, so some ships, you can't have weapons on the on the vessel. And so we're unarmed. And there had been an attack on a ship just in front of us, and they were unarmed as well. And the, the pa- uh, captain was uh, panicking. So I talked him through on the radio how to get away from this pirate attack. And he managed to successfully do that. And we were on the same course. So we knew we were heading straight into the pirates. So I activated the guys, my team, to, to go around and look for these pirates, uh, you know, because we were going to sail straight through them. Next thing you know, yep, we got a small boat here, a small boat here, a small boat here, because they work in teams, the pirates of small boats called a pirate action group. And the pirates will not just initiate an attack out of nowhere. They will come in because pirates are, are criminals of opportunity. They don't want to be hurt and they don't want to be captured. So they'll come in and they'll check you out. Now, they're armed. They're pirates. Yeah. We were unarmed. I was like, oh, Okay, we could be in a bit of bother here, lads. So the 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 chief reconnaissance boat was edging its way in, and um, and he was getting closer and closer. And what I had done on these unarmed jobs is I'd got the ship's crew to make up cutouts, wooden cutouts of rifles, and paint them like a rifle. <laughs> so it's just a piece of plywood, okay, cut out. And okay, yeah. So this pirate boat is coming out towards us, and you've got pretend guns. Oh, we've got pretend a little piece of wood. <laughs> Uh, painted like a real gun and he gets close enough that I can now communicate with him so my guys are taking cover and I stand up and I hold up this 
piece of wood yeah. and I have to angle it because it's just a piece of plywood. So I have to angle it so it actually looks like a rifle and not a piece of plywood. And I've got it held above my head and with all the anger that I can muster, I'm pointing at him, pointing at my gun, making the cutthroat sign across <laughs> my throat and I'm saying rude words to him and saying, if you come any closer, I will kill you. With I, my pretend I, I, I will. gun. <laughs> You'll never find out that this is pretend, but if it was... <laughs> Um, what am I going to do? Throw it. Uh, and so with all the anger that I can, my crazy thousand yard stare, I'm, I'm threatening this group of pirates. Next thing you know, he reaches under. So they don't want to be shot at and they yeah. don't want to be captured. So they hide their weapons. Right. He reaches under the canvas in his boat. And I think, right, that's it. I'm rumbled. He's pulling out a rifle or a, an RPG, a rocket propelled grenade, and he's going to shoot us. So he reaches under. I tell everybody to take cover. He pulls out this huge fish. <laughs> he holds it up in the air and he points at it and he says, fisherman, fisherman, fisherman. Oh my God. And I'm standing there with a piece of wood in my hand <laughs> and I'm thinking, I've got a piece of wood pretending to be an armed security guard. You've got a fish pretending to be a fisherman. <laughs> We're both trying this to... This just go in different directions. <laughs> and, so, and so I'm pointing at my gun, my piece of wood, and I'm pointing at him and he says, no, 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 fisherman. And they turn around and off they go. So yeah, I managed to, uh, I managed to deflect a pirate attack. With, with a piece of plywood. With a piece of plywood. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> and after the break, we're going to hear what you did next. Broadcasting to South Dublin on 93.9. This is Dublin South FM. Sponsored by the UCD Innovation Academy. You're listening to An Entrepreneur Like You with Dr. Lolly Mansi. Welcome back, everybody. So Darren has just seen off some pirates with a piece of plywood. <laughs> and then uh, he is moving now into a change of career. So I'd like to talk about what you're currently doing. So um, when we were on our hike together, uh, you said to me, um, well, some people would call me a ninja, which of course, you know, that's not very often. Most people don't open with that statement, but you are a shinobi. That's the traditional name. No, 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 no. I, I'm definitely not a shinobi. Okay. <laughs> talk <laughs> no. me through what, what I'm getting wrong. Yeah. Um, so the... The healing art that I practice is from the shinobi tradition. Oh, the, ninja, the shinobi tradition. The ninja tradition, right. which was from 3,500 years. They they had this uh, healing practice that they would pass on the knowledge of from master to student. Right. Um, and then eventually in the 1980s and 1990s, this, because it was a secret until then within the ninja community. Yeah. Or the traditional old-fashioned ninja community. Um and then eventually it was taught to some Westerners, so three Westerners, two Brit British and one Irish fella, three friends with medical backgrounds. It was taught to them and they were told, take this to the world. So they developed what they had learned right. from the, this ancient, the this Japanese, ancient Japanese ninja tradition and, and developed it to what we now know as Amatsu. Amatsu. So it's Amatsu therapy. Amatsu so what was, therapy. The, what was the precursor? I know there's a large event in your life um, that led into this. What mm. was the precursor into you finding this and coming across it? Again, something, I was really successful with my security business mm. uh, and I was doing very, very well, but something wasn't sitting right in my soul. Yeah. Um, and I couldn't shake it off. Um, to be involved in security, you have to have bad things happening around the world. Yeah. You have to have evil right. in the world right. to justify your existence. And I'm not saying myself, but then if you expand that out to the industry at whole, yeah. The industry at whole is it has to tell everybody there are terrible things happening and you need us and you need to pay us really good money to do it and it just wasn't sitting right in, for me and uh, and then I hurt myself I, I got a chest injury um, and I'd spent eleven days in Nace General Hospital on the highest amount of morphine they could give me. What had happened? 
Uh, it turned out to be something wrong with my chest muscles underneath my chest, okay. you know, in, underneath my rib cage. Wow. Uh, there was a problem there and I was in beyond agony. And 11 days, they couldn't figure out and they said, listen, we're going to, because you're taking up a bed and we cannot fix this, we're going to send you home because you're so close because I only live around the corner yeah. and we're going to bring you in every day as an outpatient. So my wife said, listen, I know a guy, he does this thing this Japanese thing, thing yeah. and uh, he thinks he knows what the problem is and he thinks he can help you. He was an old friend of hers. Okay. Uh, I'm not a good patient. I was raging. Oh, I've been in hospital for 11 days. If they can't figure out, right. then he's not going to figure out. Anyway, went down there. In one session, he fixed me. What did he do? He did a Matsu. Right. He did a Matsu. It wasn't even my chest that was the problem. It was other areas of my body because the point of a Matsu is nine times out of 10, unless you sustained a direct injury to somewhere, yeah. it's somewhere else that's caused that. Right. So somewhere else in your body has caused that that pain point. The pain point is usually the victim. The cause can be somewhere else. And because of neuroscience and pain science, you may not be even physically aware or mentally aware of where the problem really is because you may not have a pain response for it. But that can be having a knock-on effect through your body and causing a problem somewhere else. So he did figure out and he fixed me. In, in, and I had, I can only say, an epiphany. In that right. moment, I went down and spoke to him and said, how did you do what you did? He explained. And I just went, that's it. That's it. This is the way ahead. I've got right. it wrong all these years. I genuinely did what I did all those years to be a part of the greater good. I, yes. I enjoyed it. Yes. I, I earned money out of it. Um, I was good at it. Yes. But I wanted to be a part of the greater good. And in that one moment, and it was an epiphany moment, I said, I've got it wrong. Yeah. The real way of healing the world is to heal one person at a time and then right. they can go and spread. Otherwise, I'm just looking for problems somewhere in the world to go and fight. And we all know, look at any anything that happens in the news, it all ends at some point. Yeah. Any any big security issue in the world, it always has a beginning and the end. Human healing, human condition, human nature is ongoing. Yeah. And if I can make a positive impact in one person at a time, I can help heal the world. And I, you know, it sounds ridiculously, you know, who the hell do you think you are <laughs> walking around saying you're going to heal the world? I believe it. Yeah. I believe you can heal the world one person at a time. And I had an epiphany moment and just said, I'm giving everything up right now. I mean, it's clear from your story, which is, you know, so nuanced, it's, it's wonderful that, that you've been searching for something, you know, like kind of that, that, you know, each time you think you found it and then you say something was missing or so my soul was, you know, wasn't happy. There was something else. Yeah. What is it about discovering a Matsu therapy that is, 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 is sort of allowing you to find peace? Matsu therapy was the door opening mm. for me to walk through and then discover the secrets or what had been the secrets of finding peace. Right. So Matsu therapy itself wasn't the defining thing. Yeah. It's it's not, I can't look at it and say, that's the secrets of the world. Right. It opened the door that I can walk through and then find those. So this, and I didn't think about it until you just said that there, this something not sitting right in my soul. What I have come to understand in life is that, you know, you see all the, the young kids and they're going to go to Thailand to go and find themselves. Yeah. The secret isn't finding yourself. The secret is finding out what you're not. Right. That's the secret is we build up and we're socially conditioned to think about all of these things we are. I am Darren. My name is Darren. I identify as Darren. I am a male. I am white. I am a former commando. I am a healer. I am whatever else. Yeah. Now, get up. This is a small room, but get 20 Darrens in this room uh, who all identify as Darren. Now who's Darren? 
We all right. are. Right. Get 50 therapists in this room right. that we all identify. Get anything, anything you identify with, get 50, 100 of those people in that room. You're not that thing. Right. That's just something sense. you, yeah. you it's have a attached. It's yeah. a label yeah. you've attached to yourself. So it's about stripping away all of that mm. and finding out what you're not. And then you can return to your, your true nature, mm. which again, isn't very interesting because... It doesn't have any labels. You can't explain it. Our genuine true nature. A tree isn't there saying, listen, Saturday, I'm going to be putting on a great big event to explain how great I am because I'm a tree. Yeah. It's just being a tree. So that's what you mean when we started then about, you know, we are we are nature, nature is us. Yeah. Yeah, I understand that. That, that makes perfect we, sense. We are, that there are no labels. We have to have labels because our, our human minds can't comprehend the great unknown. Um in its, in its full expanse. So we have to have labels to, to help us understand. But as long as you can say, it's it's just a label. Mm. That's all it is. And then ignore it. I mean, I suppose really what you're talking about there is our sort of our true essence. Um, it's also combined with that beautiful Japanese word, ikigai, you know, mm. the, the reason we do things, what gets us up in the morning. It's mm. not salary. It's got to be something further than that. And I think that, you know, throughout your life, you've been seeking for your ikigai. I think you have it now, for, you know, the way that you speak about what you do. Um, explain to the listeners how amatsu therapy works. So traditional amatsu therapy is it's a physical uh, therapy, hands-on therapy, bodywork therapy, but it's incredibly gentle, uh, incredibly counterintuitively gentle because it's working with the, the nature of the human condition. Um, and it's essentially, it's looking for what the root cause of a problem is. So somebody can come in with a, a sore neck mm -hmm. and say, I'm here because my neck is hurting. Or actually it's your, it's your lower back that's actually causing that, but you're not even aware of that because you, or it could be your, your big toe. Yeah. Um, and, and that's that's essentially what we're doing. We're, but what I found since since I started is just because of other things that have kind of moved my my path around. It's beyond the physical body. There is no disconnect between the mental and the physical. Mm -hmm. Zero disconnect. Our mind and our body are absolutely connected, and it's almost ridiculous to even conceive that they're separate from each other. You do something to the mind, it will affect your body. Right. That's science. You do something to your body, it will affect your mind. That's science. It's fact. And so I'd say almost a third of the people, if not more now, of the people that I see are for mental or emotional conditions as right. well. And I'm treating and helping them heal because I can't heal anybody. Uh, I can only facilitate their internal healing. We're treating and healing mm -hmm. mental and emotional conditions through the human body. You talked in, in the early stages about resilience, mm. and I think your, your perhaps your definition of resilience would have been different from the time that you were in the Marines. Of what does it mean to be resilient? It means to never give up. Mm. What does your definition of resilience mean now since you've discovered Amatsu therapy? Life isn't fair. Nature isn't fair because fair is a, a human concept. Right. Life is just life. Nature is just nature. There is no good. There is no bad. There is only my personal interpretation of an experience or an event. Mm. We can both be looking at a painting. I might hate that painting with all of my soul. You may look at the same painting and love it. You know, and that can then be expanded out to anything in life. So there are no events and no experiences in life that are fair or, or good or bad. It's just what we take from it. Right. And so I think resilience is about being able to strip away all those layers and move through life, in life, with life, with nature, through nature, and just be able to be. 
Mm. Do you understand? I do, totally. I, th- I think that's... I think that's the important thing. And it's hard because we're socially conditioned to, this happened to me, that's so terrible. You know, that happened. I experienced this, that's awful. It happened. <laughs> it's done. Yesterday move, move forward. was the fourth year anniversary of your son passing. Yeah. Um, how, how does, how do you, I mean, the words <clears throat> coping are always put out there for grief. And, and we've had Liz Gleason on this show and she mm-hmm. talks a lot about the shapes of grief and she's mm-hmm. doing some absolutely phenomenal work there. The grief never leaves you. It becomes the tapestry of part of who you are. How does that help inform you when you're seeing so much suffering in the clients that you're dealing with? Compassion. Yeah. Compassion. I, I don't think I really truly understood compassion until my son died. Yeah. Um, you know, I had judgments about all sorts of different things. You know, I was the good guy, you know, which is subjective to the person that I was against, maybe. Yeah. I was always the good guy. So I had judgments about what was good and what was right. But then to, to lose my son, on top of all the other traumas that I've experienced in my life, mm. you know, which was cumulative, but to lose him just shattered my entire world to the point where, imagine getting a crystal glass and shattering it so it turns into those fine shards. That's yeah. what, that ha- what happened. And then you say, right, okay. Let's rebuild this worldview. Yeah. And I understood compassion at that point. And so whenever anybody steps into my clinic and one of the most common things I hear is, oh, you probably think I'm an absolute nutcase. I'm probably the worst, um, most complex client you've ever seen. (laughs) No. Yeah. No, you are just you. Yeah. You don't compare to anybody else. But thankfully, I've experienced extremes in all directions so anything you say or anything you do cannot affect me i can just look at you with absolute compassion and say i know that we can help heal you does the healing come from you believing in them um i i whether me believing in them helps them believe in themselves yeah that might be it because i can't heal anybody um all I'm doing is put my hands on somebody. <laughs> I'm not unzipping them and rewiring things inside. Yeah. Their body is actually making the adaptations right. towards healing. And so, and I believe, and I genuinely believe that as, an, as a, a mammal, as a, as a species, that our bodies and our minds are made to be able to self-organize and self-heal. I'm not saying we can think ourselves out of cancer or anything like that. Right. Although uh, spontaneous remission is a, is a known and researched thing. Um, but I know that we are capable of self-organizing and self-healing. I know that. We did used to think that the brain was finite and would age, and then we now understand much more about neuroplasticity and actually we're creating new neurons all the time. So it's, but again, these ancient traditions have always known this. Yeah. <laughs> it's like we're late to the party, right? And, and you know, I, I, I am, I'm the biggest spotter in the world because I will spend half my time researching ancient uh, religious and spiritual traditions. Yeah. And I will spend the other half of my time researching quantum sciences. Yeah. Because the two of them... They're not are, mutually exclusive at all. They're talking yeah, about absolutely. the same thing. Absolutely. It's absolutely. just, you know, it was all fit for the purpose of whatever your audience was at the time. So from Royal Marine Commando to Ninja, I mean, it's it's a hell of a journey. <laughs> and I always say, you know, life go, kind of goes in five-year blocks. Pick any, any timeline you want, but I, I kind of say five-year blocks. Stand at the beginning of this five-year block and say, right, what's my plan for five years from now? Yeah. And you can think about it and think about it and then go, right, this is what I'm aiming for. And then at the end of that five years, you stand there and go, how the hell did I end up here? Right. I could never have imagined this. 
And then you think, right, where am I going to be five years from now? At the end of that five years, you're like, how did I get here? Yeah. <laughs> I didn't plan for this. So now I don't even plan. I'm just moving forward in life, just going, this is just the best roller coaster I've ever been on in all my life. Well, I'm a firm believer in living in the moment and uh, this moment is truly wonderful. <laughs> it is, it is. Darren Knight, it's been an absolute pleasure. How do people get in touch with you if they want to know more about Amatsu therapy? So the name of the clinic is Dundanu Amatsu Clinic. So do you want to spell that? Yeah, D-U-Fada. Uh, N, so Dune from the Irish Dune, yeah. uh, which means safe space or fort. Yeah. Danu, D-A-N-U, uh, from the goddess Danu, which can be a, um, kind of Mother Earth. Yeah. And then Amatsu Clinic. So I've got a website um, and then on social media, you can find me under the same name, Dune Danu Amatsu Clinic. And then you can find my contact details from there and just drop me a line. And I'm more than happy for somebody just to give me a call and figure me out and say, yeah. hey, are you the right fit for me? How wonderful. Well, listen, I wish you, I can't wait to see where you are in five years time. I can. <laughs> what a mystery. How exciting. <laughs> Listeners, we'll see you next month.